0: you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who, who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, first and foremost, we come before you. And Lord, um, even for me as a as a human pastor standing before this congregation lord knowing what all this ha- has occurred in this week knowing that there are some in this congregation with broken and heavy hearts lord lord i i feel to a degree what you feel and what and i feel to a degree what what even the apostle paul said when he said that um who 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 is it that grieves that i that i don't grieve and who is it that Sins that I do not find myself being indignant, that I have this daily anxiety for the church is laid upon me. And Lord, I feel that to a degree, that I know within this crowd and congregation, there are, there are people with just varying degrees of difficulties. And then there are some here, Lord, who rejoice, and, right, and rightly so, Lord. And so, Lord, we're, we're a mixed bag this morning, and you know that. But what I feel in degree, you feel to the nth degree. You feel perfectly and you are a much greater minister than I can ever be. And your spirit is a greater minister. So would you by your power and in your sovereignty and your omniscience, would you minister your word to each person as he needs it? I understand what Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient? To stand before a congregation like this and to preach your word, and the truth is we are not, but your spirit is your word is powerful, and would you minister it to your people? would you help us and be with us um this morning in your name we pray amen thank you. you could be seated um I, I I feel like one of the the prophets preaching to the uh preaching to the remnant like if you're visiting with us um like use hand sanitizer, like this is what's left of the congregation after the black plague has been upon us. And so uh, it's good to see those of you that have been ill and you're feeling somewhat better and um, those of you who have yet to get ill, just to wait and hold on and uh, hopefully it passes quickly. But it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, so we're in John, the 13th chapter, starting a, a, a new chapter, but not just a new chapter. We're also starting a new section of the book of John. I said this last week and we're seeing it bear um, fruition this week is in John, between John 12 and John 13, there's a change in tone. There's a change in audience um, before Jesus um, up until then at the end of chapter 12, Jesus is finishing his earthly ministry. It ends with Jesus's final plea to the Jews to believe in him. We know that they don't because they have the Romans put him on a, put him, crucify him on a cross. And now we're into chapter 13 and what's going to happen on chapters from chapters 13 until chapters actually 20 is, um, is Jesus's final, final hours. I mean, this is Jesus's final hours. No longer can we say even Jesus's final days. These are Jesus's final hours. And what we have captured here is Jesus's, Jesus's ministry to his disciples. This is Jesus now speaking to, as we even see here, his own. This is Jesus pouring into the leaders who will lead Jesus's new community. That's important. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, he's gonna pray for them. This is Jesus's final sermon, Jesus's final teaching, Jesus's final moments with not just his disciples, but the men in this room, 11 of them, are going to be the leaders, the foundation for this new community that Jesus is building, that with Jesus' blood, he is going to free and ransom and redeem a people unto himself. And the leaders of that new community, the ones who are going to write the New Testament on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are these men that are uh, that are in this room by majority. And so Jesus is pouring into them, he's setting them up as the leaders of the blood-bought community, the the church. That's who the church is, the ransomed and redeemed and freed and purchased people of Jesus. Jesus is setting up and pouring into them. And this is the lesson that Jesus has for them this morning and the lesson that he has for us. It's this, that love, that's what it's about. Love is rooted in humility and it manifests itself in sacrificial service. So what we want to see is we want to see love. We're seeing in this text, we're seeing humility. We're seeing it avail itself in sacrificial service. That's, the, that, that's what we want to see in, as it coexists. That's the connection. That's the application is love, humility, and sacrificial service. We see it unfolding in three ways, kind of three headings as we work through this sermon. The first one is Jesus wants us to be secure in his love to be secure in Jesus's love. Second is, what we see is we must receive his cleansing. That's the key to transformation. In this text, we're gonna talk about transformation that needs to occur. In this text, as we preach and as we see Jesus's actions, hopefully we're gonna see our own hearts, our own lack of humility, our own need for Jesus's cleansing. We're gonna see our own need for transformation. And the key for transformation in our own hearts and our own lives Starts with knowing that Jesus loves us, but second, it's receiving, his cleansing. And thirdly, it's to follow his example. All right, let's get into the context. You ready? We're going to start again in in verse one, and we'll just kind of break it down section by section. If you're visiting with The Point um, this morning, welcome. We're glad to have you. This is kind of how we roll. We're going to look through the, hopefully, make it through in 31 minutes, all 17 verses again chunk by chunk, little bite-sized piece by bite-sized piece, all right? It's Thursday night for Jesus. That's where we are. That's the context. On what, on what day will Jesus be crucified? Friday, right? Good Friday. And on Sunday, he will rise from the grave. And it's Thursday night. So don't let, okay, you got, you know, several more chapters. It ends in chapter 21, the book of John does. Don't let that, you know, deceive you into not knowing, like, It's the hour. When Jesus says it's the hour, that's what he means. It is the hour. It's the final hours of his life. In just a few short hours, Jesus will be arrested. That's going to happen early in the morning, like in the wee hours on Friday morning. In the darkness there, Jesus will be arrested. He will stand trial, and then he will be crucified on Friday. The disciples, they've gathered together with Jesus for the Passover, for the observance of the Passover. They're meeting together in an upper room for the Northern Jews. This took place on, uh, on Thursday night. That's, you know, so it's Thursday night. They're meeting together. Jesus has already said, I hope to be able to have this, to share this meal with you one last time. It's during this Passover that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Now, John doesn't cover that in his gospel. Why? Oh, here, here you go. We don't know. The other, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they cover the institution of the Lord's Supper in this setting, but John, he doesn't. And maybe because Matthew, Mark, Luke have already been written, John is kind of doing his own thing. That's, they're called synoptic gospels. They're, they're kind of, there's a, there's a thread working between them. John's just over here kind of doing his own deal. And maybe it's because, hey, it's already been covered. Some would speculate and say that possibly there was already some idea of like some magical powers in the Lord's Supper, some mysticism surrounding the Lord's Supper. And so John's like, hey, I, ain't, I don't have time for all of that. So John just leaves out the institution of the Lord's Supper. In no way is he diminishing the Lord's Supper. I mean, the themes and the promises of the Lord's Supper are throughout his book, but nevertheless, he doesn't include it into, uh, into his writing. Here's what it starts in verse one, now before... The, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, where's he going? He's going back to the Father. And here's what he says. He having loved his own who were in the world. Jesus loved them to the end. He loved them to the end, to the end of their lives, to the end of his ministry, to the very end and beyond the end, even when he ascends into heaven. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. What is it that Jesus in these final moments, what is it that he wants his disciples to know? It is this, he wants them to be secure in his love for them. What is it that Jesus wants? I believe wants every person, every human that is in this room. What is it that Jesus wants for you? Well, if you're a believer, Jesus wants this for you. He wants you to be secure in his love for you. And if you have yet to place faith and trust in Jesus, if you've yet to surrender, and submit to the authority and to the reigning power of Christ and have yet to name him as both your savior and your and Lord, if you've yet to renounce your sin and ask forgiveness for your sin and believe and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as your Savior. If you've yet, if you've just sung words, but you've yet to believe with real faith in the words that we sung when we sang about Jesus' uh blood that washes us up of your sins, if you've yet to place faith in In that, what Jesus wants you to know is you can be secure in his love for you. He is willing, are you willing to receive his cleansing in order to be secure in his love? When you think of John chapter 13, I want you to think of it as the chapter of love. There's events that are occurring within John um, chapter 13. Judas betrays Jesus in this text. We'll see as this chapter unfolds, there's going to be other things that are going to happen. You know, like I said, uh, Judas Iscariot is going to betray Jesus. Jesus is going to foretell of uh, Peter's denial. He's going to talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit. But in working of that, one primary teaching that Jesus has for his disciples, and it is this, it is love. Think about what are the chapters in the Bible that specifically speak of love. Well, there are two of them, John 13 and 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll look at that even later in this sermon. That Jesus wants them to know that he loves them. John states that Jesus' love for his disciples, he says it like this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus has a special and unique love for his people for his disciples, and he is he is saying that. that's why John writes it this way. He loves his own. As Christians, we're we're called to love one another. We're called to love every. I'm called as a believer to love every man and every woman, every you know little boy, every girl. That's what I'm called to love them. But there is one woman to which I have a very unique and very special love toward. Her name is Luann Lawrence. I've loved her. I, I don't know when, at what point I fell into love with her, but I've known her since we were 15 years old, got married when we were 20. We've now spent almost 30 years together in some form or fashion. Like, that's unbelievable. I don't even feel like I should be 30 years old, let alone that I've known my my wife for 30 years. And my love for her is very unique And hopefully it's very special, but it is certainly very unique. And why do I love her in the way that I love her? Because I have covenanted to love her in this way. I've pledged myself to her. And what do I want as as her husband? What do I want most for her? Well, it's this. I want her to be secure in my love for her. I want her to know that I really with true and with true affections and true desire, not reluctantly, not because I'm being forced to love her, but my love for her is a love for her because we are flesh of flesh, and she's bone of my bone, and I love her. And what does Jesus want his own to know? It's the same thing. That they are, they are loved with a fierce and ferocious love, with a real, true love, with a true affections flowing from Jesus, who, are, who is his own. Well, in this text, we see his own are being, they're being almost named. They are the, they're the 11 disciples. That's who his own are. His own have been talked about all throughout the book of John. John has been highlighting this, Jesus' teachings about his own. His own are the ones that the Father has given to him. His own, John 10, are his own sheep. That Jesus is the shepherd, and the shepherd will lay down his life for whom? For his sheep. And those are the 11 men minus Judas that are in that room. And what Jesus wants them to know is, I have a very peculiar and special love for you. And those eleven men are being—they they are are are, are typified, if you will, of believers. His own sheep isn't just those eleven men, but his own sheep are all of those for and, until Jesus returns again. Who will place faith and trust in Jesus? That goes back to John ten. If you are here today, and you have placed faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. If you have, I've already said, if you've renounced your sin, it doesn't mean you're living perfectly, but it means that you love Jesus, that Jesus loves you. And we say that, but gosh, I think Jesus this morning, he wants us to know that. And I think he wants us to be secure. He wants us to be secure in his his love for us. That's what he wants for us today, to be secure in his love. Now listen, that doesn't free us to abuse his love. Doesn't free us to scorn his love, to deny his love, but it does free us to live in light of his love, to live in the overflow of his love. You don't have to earn his love. You don't have to win his love. You don't have to do good things to stay in his love. That he loves us because we are his, because we are flesh of his flesh. That's what Paul writes. The Ephesians five, we are his body. We are as his church, we are Jesus's body. And what Jesus is saying over and over again, in, even in first Corinthians, he talks about everyone loves their own. They love their own bodies. And in the same way, what that transfers to us being called Jesus's body is, Jesus loves us with a true love. And that's important because we say this often. I think I got this from Tim Keller, that love awakens love. I mean, some of the men in the room, you understand that because that's how you won your spouse, that in the beginning like Luann. Luann didn't want to have a lot to do with me. She thought I was cute, but that was about it. And I hunted her down and pursued her by buying her nice things, by treating her nicely, taking her doing these things. And my love, my care, my concern, it awakened a love and care and concern. She's like, I don't know about this guy. He seems kind of nerdy. He's awful small. He certainly is scrawny, but golly, he, he understands me and he knows what to buy for me. He knows what to do for me. And I've never had a guy treat me the way that he's treating. And my love awakened a love in her. In the same way, Christ's love awakens a love for us. It is Christ's love working in us that works out for us in obedience, That the Christian life is about this. It's about being secure in Christ's love for us, allowing that to awaken a love for, uh, a real love in us. And from that love, we obey Christ. We'll get there. I think it's John 15. Jesus will say, if you love me, then you will obey my commands. And so the Christian life isn't just about obeying commands, Like some of you maybe grew up in a church that was, what we would say was very legalistic, very law-driven, you know, men do this, women do that, you can't, you know, have long hair, you can't, certainly can't have earrings, you can't, women can't wear pants, and men wear kilts, I don't even know, right? Like I don't even know where they get some of this stuff from, and nevertheless it's like that, and all you knew of Christianity was what I'm not supposed to do, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't. Nobody ever told you what you could do. And here's what you can do you can love Christ because he's loved you. That the Christian life begins here, it begins with Jesus' love. Jesus loves me, this I know. I mean, a lot of us, it's like maybe the first song that we ever learned and what a great song it is for us to learn and to know. But like with repetition of hearing it and hearing it, we've just kind of moved on past that. But look at what's happening here in this text. Think about the room. Think about the 11 that are in the room. Peter's gonna deny Jesus, right? They're all gonna walk away from Jesus. Jesus is gonna be crucified publicly, but all of his disciples, they're not gonna be there. They're gonna be hiding and cowering. I think John, the writer of it, he's gonna be watching from afar with Jesus, mother. And yet Jesus, he knows this because he's, because he's God. He knows how fickle their faith is. And yet Jesus bringing them together, he goes, I want you to be secure in this truth. I love you. I've loved you. I'm gonna love you all the way to the end. I'm gonna love you. Whether nailing me to the cross, that will be a declaration of my love for you. Don't ever deceive yourself. And so, the truth for us is this that Jesus loves us not because of our faithfulness to Him, but Jesus loves us because of His faithfulness to us. He loves us because we are His own, because He's purchased us and bought us. And the Father has, for those of us who are believers, the Father has. He has, the father has given us to him. Verse number four, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped about him. How many of you got teenage boy or or had teenage boys in your home, right? Like, you, then you understand this, what's going on here about stinky feet, right? Like, you, you understand. I mean, is there, I mean, is there anything any, any nastier than, than stinky feet, right? No, right? Luan tells that Luen's brother Troy had a, had a good friend who had a, a foot odor problem, right? I mean, let's just be some, it's just, it just happens, right? I mean, you can use the, fast-acting, ten-acting all you want, or whatever it's called there. It's still going to happen. And Luanne's like, she could walk in her house as a grown-up and she would know if Troy's buddy would be over. Cause, and they lived in, you, you lived in the basement, right? Be like, oh, so and so Like, we understand this. Like, think about this. In biblical times, they didn't have fancy shoes like we have now. I mean, they didn't even have uh, chaco sandals like we have now with the thick rubber soles. I mean, they had little thin pieces of, of leather. Right with other leather tied to them, and the streets are muddy and dirty, and there's not pavement, there's not asphalt, there's none of those things, and then you've got animals. On you, you, you follow me, right? So they're walking in all of this, and so it just became like you know part of the practice before you went into anybody's home. Is there would be a, as you walked into the home, there would be a, a water pot outside to accommodate foot washing. So you would pour that over your feet and maybe you'd have something there to dry or maybe in some homes it would fall to a humble person. The lowliest slave or the lowliest servant would do the foot washing because it's the lowliest of tasks, very unskilled and not the most enjoyable duty, but yet it was very necessary. Also think about this, in biblical times, meals oftentimes would last for hours. When they fast food, when they come together, uh, and I shovel some food in our mouths and roll out. They, meals would last, especially like the Passover meal may last for hours. The next thing is, is they don't, they're not sitting in tables and chairs. I know that the painting that Michelangelo did, like there's a lot wrong with that. And one of them is they're not sitting in tables and chairs. That's why it talks about in the Bible, it talks about I mean, reclining. So imagine this, like as the evening would go on, you're sitting at a table, you're, you're laying down, right? And then as the evening goes, you begin to recline. So your head's here, and the person next to you—guess what? Their feet, you get you, right there. You get it. And so, what's happening here? That's kind of the picture. It would be simple courtesy would indicate that we ought to be taking care of those feet. I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you know, some of you require folks even today take off your hey, take off your shoes for you coming into the house. So, could you imagine here? They're all reclining at the dinner with dirty feet, and this is a very discourteous thing. But more than that, something else that John omits that Luke adds into his text that I think gives us a a better or a more fuller, if you will, picture of what's happening. That as they're reclining, Luke 22 says there's an argument that breaks out among the disciples. And here's what the argument is. Who is going to be the greatest in the new kingdom that Jesus is setting up? One is, hey, it's going to be me. I know I'm the one that's going to be the greatest. And no, 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 no. It's going to be me. I will be the guy. And so the disciples, these 11 men, are bickering among themselves as to who will be the greatest in the new kingdom. Hours before Jesus' death, hours before the greatest display ever to be known of love and humility and sacrifice, foundational truths that this new kingdom is going to be established upon, these new leaders, can you imagine, these new leaders that he's pouring into, they're bickering about who is going to be the greatest in the new kingdom. It's a wonder Jesus didn't stand up and say, boys, you've missed it. You missed the boat. You're missing the big E on the I chart here. Like if you've noticed anything about my life, nothing about my life has been about who's gonna be the greatest. Everything about my life, my coming, my living, my, and what's gonna about to happen in my dying has all been about humility. It's all about about self-denial, but nevertheless, they're caught up in that. I mean, Jesus had to have great faith in the new birth, right? I mean, that's that's something for me as a pastor that's super helpful. Jesus had tons of faith in the work of the Holy Spirit coming into the lives of believers. Otherwise, he probably would have said, Father, can we like prolong this thing for a little longer? These boys need more than the crash course of three years that I've been giving them because they're here and they're arguing. And what we see happening as this unfolds, I think as we read this in, what we see is we see their dirty feet is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for for their own hearts and for their own lives. It's a metaphor that more than your dirty feet need to be cleansed, it's a metaphor that all of you needs to be cleansed. And so what Jesus does in the midst of all of this, Jesus stands up and he removes his robe. And as a demonstration, as an example of the kind of humility and and love that we are to have, he begins to take the role and the job of the lowliest of slaves, and the lowliest of servants, what kind of savior is this? See, this is another place where Christianity takes a radical detour from all other religions. Is here we have the hero of the story taking on the role of a servant. Here we have the God of the universe stooping down and becoming like a lowly slave and beginning to wash his disciples' feet. And Jesus says that he does this as an example for the kind of humility and the kind of love that is to permeate the heart and the lives of his disciples. And this right here, I think may help us. This is something for me this week as I worked on this sermon that The two things of humility and love coming together in the life of Christ has really helped me to understand my own struggle with love and even my own struggle with pride. That Jesus is exemplifying, this is so important here, Jesus is exemplifying real love for those of us who are in the church. Real love for those of us who are believers. And it's this, real love is rooted in humility. Now, let me say that on the flip side, the opposite. And let me apply it to us. People who struggle with pride will undoubtedly struggle to show genuine love. People who struggle with pride, an inflated view of self and self-importance and who are self-centered will undoubtedly struggle to show Love, I could say love because there's like no such thing as like ingenuine love, disgenuine love, right? Love is what it is, it's love. To show genuine love, that's just love. That's what Jesus is calling us to here, to love, to have real affection, real love. I mean, Paul does, it, let your love be genuine. Don't let it be hypocritical. There's either hypocritical love or there's genuine love. And here's what we have here is genuine love flows from a humble heart. that some of you, you know your own hearts and then you know in the truth, you know, like to, to your own self be true, right? You know in your own truth that you, you struggle to love others. You struggle to appreciate and devalue others. You struggle to serve others when it's inconvenient to you. You struggle to accept others, especially those who are difficult to love or those who are not like you. You struggle to do that, right? I mean, all of us here, we struggle to, to love others, like Cardinal fans and, right, and volunteer fans. Now it's easy, right? But to invite others, really, seriously, we, we, we struggle to accept others and to invite others into our lives. But remember, in just not next Sunday, but the following Sunday, we'll look at this text down in verse number 34 a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then by this, all people will know that you are my disciple in that you love one another. Our salvation is being, is being manifested. One of the primary markers of the genuineness of our faith, Jesus is saying is, is being evidenced in, in, in that we love one another. It's not being evidenced in theological precision, It's not being evidenced in morality, although those things are important. But what Jesus says, the the way that our faith is is being shown and being manifested, the genuineness of our faith is being manifested in the way that we love, really love like Jesus has loved others. And the truth is, is as we think about that and as we even think about Jesus's humility here and Jesus's self-denial here and Jesus's genuine love here, as we think about that and we think about our own lives, we probably, many of us say, man, I struggle to love others like Jesus loves even me. I struggle to love others as Jesus has loved others. And here's the truth. The problem, I think this may be helpful, the problem isn't that you need to love more which we just to like try to drum up some emotion of love. No, what you need is you need to have your pride crushed and you need to grow in humility. Let's look at that in another place in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the other chapter that I said that is on love, um, maybe you had this read at your wedding not a show of hands. And if you did, that's fine. That's nothing wrong with that. But just be aware, context matters. And the context in which the the apostle Paul is writing this to the church in Corinth, he's not talking about weddings. He's not talking about marriage here. In fact, he's talking about the context is the church. So when all of that that you had read, love, is this and this and this and this and this. Those are all truisms. But listen, that love, that kind of love, isn't just to be manifested between you and your spouse. It's to be manifested in the life of Jesus' church. So when Jesus says, In this you will know that you are my disciples and that you love one another, and then we would say, Well, what kind of love? What's love look like? Is love just lukewarm feelings? Is love just not hating them? I mean, I like—I pretty much like most of these people in here. You know, there's a couple of them, but nevertheless, you know, and the the people that are in my community, like, what does that look like? No, no, no. Like, he's defining that. And as Paul defines that, he says it also by giving us the flip side. Like, sometimes we can define things not by just what it is by definition, but by the contrast, right? Let me show you the opposite of that. And that's what he does when he says, um that i see uh, verse four love is patient love is kind it does not envy here we go it does not envy or boast it's not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it's not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoings but rejoices with the truth do you see that Do you see on the converse that those things, such as it does not insist on its own way, being arrogant, being rude, like what's the root of those things? P-R-I-D-E, five. Five letters, pride. That it's pride. That's the problem. That it's rooted in pride. That pride is an antithesis to love. And we see this show up in Peter in this text back to John 13 it rises up we see pride rise up in peter it's being manifested here in peter's inability to receive from jesus all right verse number 6 this hurts i'll be honest it hurts he came to jesus comes to simon peter who said to him lord do you wash my feet lord do you wash my feet and jesus answered him what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter said to him, Lord, whoa, I didn't know, I didn't know it was gonna go down like that, Jesus. Hold on a minute, time out. Don't just then wash my feet only, but wash my hands and wash my head. And here's one thing, do you struggle with pride? Well, listen, pride can be manifested in a number of ways, but one of the ways that pride is manifested is in our inability to receive. That Peter's reluctance to allow Jesus to wash his feet, it's rooted in Peter's pride. And you would say, I don't have a problem with pride, but let me ask you, do you allow others to serve you? This past summer, um, my lawnmower broke down and uh, so I, had a, I got a small craftsman, <clears throat> John Deere, riding lawnmower. And I'm fairly mechanically inclined, right? Which means I know how to tear things apart, but can't really put them back together or really fix them. But I can tear things apart, right? You just keep taking screws out until you got everything out. And so I realized that, like, something's wrong with that. I changed the spark plug, put fresh gas in it, did these things. And I realized, hey, it's probably a part, problem with the carburetor, so I pulled the carburetor off and I took it all apart. And, and taking it all apart, there's like this little piece that I lost that's so important to your, I mean, you wouldn't think a carburetor would have, one it would come down to whether it worked or not with this one little float valve, but it does, right? And so I lost that piece in the grass and never could find it and ended up like, and you know, like every day I'd go out there and work on it and I think I'd have it fixed. I mean, I took this carburetor on and off 20 times, it felt like, and I think I'd have it fixed and I'd go to start it, it wouldn't run. And I'd be so frustrated Right, I, I, there's, there's a member of our church, uh, Daniel Crossman, whose dad one time worked on a lawnmower all day. Every, and he, he was a mechanic, so he knew. And he was like, I can't figure out what's wrong with it." So he just went in the house and got a shotgun and shot it, right? <laughs> he said, now I've given you a reason not to work. And I, that, that's in my head. I'm thinking about my friend, Steve Crosman. I'm like, I understand, brother. I understand how you could do this. And so I would just park it back in the garage and next day start over. And so finally I take it to a mechanic to have it actually like fixed for real. And he, you know, anyway, I take it there, but all the while, guess what's happening? My grass is growing, right? So now my grass is like, looks like a jungle. And my daughter, Kennedy, comes to me and says, Dad, you know, well, are you going to take care of this yard? Are you going to mow the grass? When are you going to mow the grass? And I'm like, I can't, Kennedy, my lawnmower's broken down. And then she goes, why don't you just borrow the neighbor's lawnmower? <laughs> no. She goes, why? And I go, "Why, well, I'm going to fix my lawnmower. That's why. No, yeah, but Teresa, who's part of the church, she'll, you know she'll let you use her lawnmower. Yeah, it's not a matter of whether she'll let me use lawnmower or not, right? I don't borrow things, right? I don't borrow lawnmowers. And my daughter says to me, she's like, if her yard need to be mowed, wouldn't you, what would you do? Would you loan her your lawnmower? And she goes, No, I know you. You'd go up there and mow it for. I'm like, well, yeah, you're right. I go up there and mow you know why? Because you are prideful. And you're too prideful to ask for help. You're too prideful to say to your neighbor, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? A lot of times, oftentimes, we say, Hey, I don't have a problem with pride. Pride can manifest itself in our, in our unwillingness to receive things and our unwillingness to ask for help. And it's showing up here with Peter. This isn't just Peter saying, hey, Jesus, you're smashing my idea of who the Messiah would be and you washing my feet. This is Peter saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, no, 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 I can't receive this from you. But look at what Jesus says. Hey, Peter, if you can't receive this from me, if you can't receive this simple act of letting me wash your feet, then you will have no part, and you'll have no part with me. You'll have no share with me. And I think what Jesus is getting at here, and some of this is my speculation, but I think what Jesus is really getting at here is he's saying to him, if you're not humble enough to, res- if you're not humble enough to let me wash your feet, then how are you ever going to be humble enough to receive me as Savior and Lord? And admitting that you are a sinner, that you are helplessly lost, that you could do nothing to save yourself, that is a super humbling thing, is it not? That in fact, what scripture calls us to is a submission to Jesus. We submit to him. We take a knee before him, recognizing him for who he is, that he is savior and Lord over all. That the Christian life is a Christian life of one of humility and us living out our lives, if you will, on our knees as we surrender and we submit to the authority and to the reign and to the rule and to the commandments of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is a very pride-crushing thing for us, is it not? Men and women, it's a pride-crushing thing. But what Jesus is saying here is you gotta do it that's the basis of salvation. That's the basis of it all, is for you to be made humble like I am humble, for you to bow down like I am bowing down here. That's what Jesus is speaking about. What, what Jesus is saying, because Peter's response to you is, you'll never wash me, and then you're going, and then he goes, I love it. it. You'll never wash me. Okay, now wash all of me, like in that, like, okay, I understand the terms now. Then wash all of me. Come and cleanse me all. And what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about Peter here, when he's talking to Peter is he's talking about the need that Peter had to be spiritually cleansed. That what Peter needed was he needed what Ezekiel prophesied in the new covenant. He needed to be washed. He needed what Paul will write about in, T- in T- to Titus about later in the future, that there's a washing of regeneration. He needed spiritual cleansing. And this is true for us that you and I, we need to be made renewed. That for the opposite, for the believer, the opposite of pride isn't just humility, but the opposite of, the, of pride is the spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul contrasts two things. It's the mindset on the flesh versus the mind that's set on the spirit. The mindset on the flesh is, is pride. The mindset on the flesh is self Though the mindset on the flesh, he later on says, is is death. But it's all of those things that indicate we've yet to receive a genuine and true transformation. That the promise of the new covenant, what Jesus is picturing here, is you need to be cleansed. It's more than just having your feet washed, but you must be cleansed. You must receive a cleansing that comes from me. You must have your old heart removed. That heart that is so prideful and so bitter and so self-concerned. And believers must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that changes. But that helps us. As you look at your own heart and you look at your own life and you come to know that, man, I am so filled with pride and I'm so filled with self-concern. And it's so difficult for me to receive and it's so difficult for me to pray to Christ. Why do you not wanna pray with Christ? Because you think you can do it and you think you can fix it. And you think, you know, just, if I could just tinker with it long enough, I'll get it and you just don't want to. Because prayer is asking for help, is it not? Prayer is an admission that you can't do it. Oftentimes, I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't save myself. I can't cleanse myself. I can't, I can't fix my children. I can't help this sick person. I can't do all of these things. And prayer is an, an admission. that I need help, Lord. Intervene, intercede, do what only you can do. And if that's difficult for you, The solution, if it's difficult for you to love others and to receive others and to give others, the solution isn't for you just to drum up more works and make a checklist and let me try this now, let me try that now. What you need is you need the Holy Spirit. And listen, I'm not saying you don't have the Holy Spirit. Those of you may be believers, oh, does that mean I need to get saved? No, I'm not talking about that. In fact, in this, when Jesus is speaking to Peter, what he says here to Peter is kind of a two-folded thing. You need to receive a one-time cleansing and then you need to be clean again. It's the contrast of taking a bath. I think that's what he's saying here. And then it's the, I think that's salvation. I think that's regeneration. I think that's us having, being being born again. That's what he's speaking of. And by that, there's a declaration that he makes. You are clean. It is in our faith, our one-time act of our justification to which we, we, we receive Christ. And Christ takes out the old heart of stone and places inside of us a new heart. And in that comes the declaration that Jesus says, because of my blood and your faith in that, you are clean. But then there is the need for almost daily cleansing, is there not? a daily washing of our feet that as, our, as we walk through this world and we get walked through the mud and the mire and the, and, and the mud holes of this world, that our feet get dirty and our thinking gets dirty and ourselves, we start thinking about ourselves more and we start thinking about the things of this world more. We think about the flesh and our mind starts beginning to shift instead of thinking of the things of the spirit, we think of the flesh and we need to be renewed and we need to be lined out and we need another washing to come. And that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, Paul, I, I, that's what Jesus is saying, Peter. You need to be washed, you need to be cleansed. It's a metaphor for continual washing that we need to undergo. That Jesus is going to wash him, and he does that. And you and I, we need to, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the picture that Paul gives in, in Ephesians 5.18 is we need to be constantly continuously, always being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the key to love. And that's the key to humility. And that's the key to living like Jesus. It's to receive Jesus' daily cleansing, the daily filling of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, he serves us. Jesus, he cleanses us. Jesus, he loves us. And from that, he calls us to follow in his example Verse number 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he then resumed his place and he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me, I'm teacher and Lord, and you are right to do so, for I am. If I then your teacher and Lord, or Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you this example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one Who sent him? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That this is the love and the humility and the sacrificial service that should permeate our lives, and it should permeate our churches. As it permeates our lives, it permeates our church. That love and humility and harmony and real service to one another that should never be assumed. Church. Not every church experiences this. It's to be protected, it's to be fostered, it's to be stirred up, it's to be continual. As we look to Jesus, to be continuated upon. And that's what we want to be as a church. We want people to experience the love of Christ as they experience and are in fellowship and as they they come and as they experience us. We want them to experience an extension of Christ's love. We want to experience that. We want to extend that as we serve one another, as we serve in kids' ministries, we serve as a greeter, as we serve outside of here, as we help each other, as we help each other move and we make meals for each other. What are we doing as we pray for one another? What are we doing? We're sacrificially loving others. And then we receive those things. We're receiving love from others from a place of humility, just as Christ has done. Be secure in Jesus's love, church. Marvel on it, rejoice in it, feel it. Be secure in Jesus's love. Receive Jesus's cleansing. Think we just sang it, have you been to Jesus? For his cleansing flood. Number three, follow in Jesus's example. We got opportunities even this week to serve and to do and to give. The way that we announce those and make those known is we do that through emails. I know like, email's the new mail with junk mail, but that's still the means by which to communicate to people. If you're not on that email uh, and don't receive that email distribution list, you can sign up for that by filling out that Connect card. But we're a, genu- we're a church that's filled with genuine love, real love, because we believe in the love of Christ, and we express that week in and week out with sacrificial service to one another, with getting in community groups, getting to know each other, getting into each other's lives, speaking the truth to each other. All for Jesus' glory. Let's pray. Jesus, as we um, prepare our hearts to remind ourselves of your great love for us, and it's from that love that we go and love others, Jesus, we humble ourselves here at this table. We humble ourselves at this place. You said, do this in remembrance of you. And that's why we do this. You instituted it because you want us to remember. What is it you want us to remember? Your sacrificial love and service for us. You want us to remember whose we are. And this is a declaration of that. In your name we pray.